Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Wealth Tech Show. I'm Ian Horn, and today I'm joined by Matt Hancock, MP for West Suffolk and former Secretary of State for Health and Social Care. Matt recently made a statement in Parliament uh, in which he said the UK could become a home for new innovations like fintech and crypto. Now, as a former Minister of State for Digital, Chief of Staff to the Shadow Chancellor and Economist at the Bank of England, I figured we should invite him to join the show to discuss both. So, Matt, thank you for joining me and welcome to The Wealth Tech Show. It's great to be with you. No, great to have you here. And to get us started, I want to know what sort of reception you've received in Parliament. You know, you're talking about crypto and fintech, new, exciting areas, not without their drawbacks, of course. Um, are people receptive to the message? And, and you know, what, in your opinion, are, are the opportunities that we need to pursue? Well, look, I think it's really important that we get this positive message out because I've been struck in Parliament that the debate about fintech, which was very vibrant, mm. you know, five, ten years ago, and very positive, it's much more cautious now, much more about, well, you know, there are bad actors who can use these technologies. Um, but the honest truth is that innovation is the way that we build the future of people's prosperity. And that's that's the big picture, yeah. sort of flying at 40,000 feet. So I was listening to this debate in, in Parliament and thinking, hold on, we've got to be more positive. We've got to be more energetic. You know, these innovations are going to happen. So let's have them happen here. You know, it's that sort of attitude, I think, which is the right one for the UK to take. It's done as well in the past. If you think of the euro bond market in the 80s, uh, if you think of the development of uh, of open banking, if you think of the um, the developments in fintech in the in the sort of 2010s, you know these improvements have best been you know done with with a strong ecosystem, and let's have that strong ecosystem here in London. The other thing that really struck me is that actually the ecosystem in fintech is really doing well. You know the amount of finance coming in is strong. Um, and with Brexit, there's an opportunity to make sure that the regulatory regime is 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 good and liberal. Um, but that wasn't being reflected in Parliament. So having had a long-standing interest in this area before I became yeah. Health Secretary, um, I I thought, well, I've got to, you know, somebody's got to get out there and speak up for these innovations that are happening, mm. and make sure that yes, by all means, there's some areas that need. Um, that need a regulatory regime. But it's got to be a liberal, positive, progressive one. And, and what does that mean, especially in a post-Brexit you know, economy where we have greater freedom, you know, ostensibly to, to do things? Yeah, so first of all, the EU is clearly moving in this space and proposing a regulatory regime that I think is relatively restrictive. Let me give you a couple of examples. You know, the first is that in buying risk assets, so crypto that isn't anchored, for instance, you know, my view is that our approach should be caveat emptor, it, you know, a very long standing principle, we should allow people to buy and trade this stuff. Um, th that is a liberal regime. Um, yes, I think there do need to be some uh, standards around, for instance, advertising, um, and there need to be standards around m uh, tackling money laundering. But the, there's an attitude in some parts of the world uh, and some parts of um, some people, some in the UK, who say, well, we should only allow sophisticated investors near this stuff because you can lose money. Well, you can lose money buying equities, right? So let's treat this asset class, this effectively new asset class, um, in, a, in a way that is open to investment and allows people to make choices for themselves. That's one example of how we need to think about things. Because ultimately, if you take crypto as an example, 
it is a new type of asset class and deciding which you know which existing asset class it's closest to um, and making sure that the regime fits that is incredibly important. Yeah, I suppose where that becomes interesting is if you were to put crypto on a risk spectrum, you know, one to 10, yeah. any financial advisor would place that solidly on a 10. You know, it's, I can see why they might think a sophisticated investor would be a better market for that rather than, you know, say the financially vulnerable. Yeah. So you've got to have protections, but there is a, there's ways to do that. Okay. So if you're investing, I, I use equities as a good example, and commodities is, is similar, right? The, the commodities are a risk asset. Um, the likewise currency, right? And you, so you can, and in a way, you know, a cryptocurrency is a currency just of a different uh, kind. Um, and the view that we should be highly restrictive in terms of who can make an investment, I think, is wrong. Um, and in fact, the drive over the last couple of decades to protect people by restricting the ease at which you can invest in certain asset classes has driven a lot of returns into the private sphere from public markets, meaning that sophisticated investors and big funds can get some really strong returns. But your your mom and pop uh, uh, asset investor, as they'd call it in the States, right, um, you just can't access those returns nearly as easily. And as we all know, you know the yields on super safe assets are are, are, are almost negligible uh, at the moment. So you end up actually making things worse off for your retail investor because they end up having to go into asset classes where the returns have been very poor um, in attempting a sort of you know patronizing attempt to uh, protect people. A far better way of doing it is the traditional British approach, which has been to be absolutely clear that your money's at risk and then allowing people to invest their money. Yeah, I think I take your point on people wanting to get involved, but I think about 92% of crypto investors are from households with less than £100,000 of annual income. So we're not talking about the ultra rich. I mean, what do you think we should do to encourage people to invest in crypto without the drawbacks? Because you're talking about the opportunity for you know outsized returns, attractive returns, but there's also the opportunity for huge losses, yeah. for people that probably can't afford to sustain them. Well, it's that last bit that I, I, I don't like. Right, because it's an assumption, a sort of the, and this is prevalent in some areas of the debate. There's an assumption, a sort of patronising assumption, that people, you know, don't have that money to lose. Now, I totally agree with you that you shouldn't put in more money than you you can afford to lose into a high risk asset, in the same way that you shouldn't gamble money that you can't afford to lose. Um, but you absolutely, I think, should be able to access. Uh, markets in interesting investments. And the idea that, you know, financial regulators and the state should effectively say to people, for instance, with under £100,000 annual income, uh, I'm terribly sorry, we know better than you what you can invest your money in. I think it's completely wrong. Mm -hmm. And do you think there's something we can do education-wise to make people aware of that? Because yeah. financial education has not particularly been a big part of the agenda at yeah. schools. I certainly left my my schooling without any financial education. Yeah. Um, you know, people are entering this not knowing that you should probably invest maybe no more than 5% of your income yeah. into crypto. Yeah. So these are the areas that absolutely need attention. So financial education, a big tick, absolutely needs, needs work. Um, making sure that the advertising is... Um, reasonable and fair, including being clear about the potential losses, uh, making sure that there's decent 
uh, disclosure regimes. Uh, absolutely work on the exchanges so that if you want to get your money out, you can get your money out. Um, and there have been some bad actors there. That, But there's already laws against essentially fraudulent um, uh, uh, offers on exchanges. So there's a whole series of areas that where we may, need to make sure essentially that the market structure is strong, that the information is strong. There's probably something on conflicts of interest that need considering if, because, you know, in other asset classes, uh, if you were to be pushing uh, an asset and you have a conflict, you ha have to declare that. Um, these are the sorts of areas that need looking at. But if you if you then go the next step and say, but the state is going to ban you because we think that you're not clever enough with your own money, I think that's a that's a, a bad path to tread. Yeah. Do you, do you think the typical investor understands cryptocurrency? I, I think that the typical investor understands that cryptocurrency is risky. That and anybody investing, you know, you just need to look at the charts. Of course, it's risky. Right. So uh, but but so just because something's risky doesn't mean that you should ban people from doing it. I mean, that's the that's the argument that I'm making. Mm -hmm. OK. Yeah, that makes sense. And especially because it only, mm -hmm. you know, when it only affects you, the risk that you're taking. Right. This isn't the, the risk that's going to affect other people. There are questions around financial stability as the scale of these markets gets huge. And that's another legitimate area for uh, for the regulatory regime, because. We know that financial instability affects other people as well as yourself. But if you're if you're investing your own money, mm -hmm. of course we you know it's risky, and uh, nobody should pretend otherwise. Uh, but allowing people to take risks is central to the progress of society. I mean, come on, if you don't if you got if you have a society without risks, you have a society without progress. Well, do you, does it concern you at all that crypto is? Unregulated. I realize I'm asking some some questions about the drawbacks with crypto. I'm, I'm probably positive on tech, but yeah. I have to ask these things. You yeah, know, of course. Yeah, crypto's unregulated, and for government to be encouraging people, or at least seem to be encouraging people to get involved, is, is that not a concern? Well, what I'm saying is people should be free to get involved, right? It isn't. I, I'm not encouraging or discouraging people to get involved. I'm saying that we shouldn't stop people from getting involved by fiat, by diktat, uh, by the actions of the state. What, I, what I'm saying is you need a strong market, but a liberal free market in these assets. So action on, for instance, information and advertising and conflicts is all about having a strong market. Mm -hmm. there are, you know, the, the suggestion that we should uh, tell other people that they can't invest in this asset, that is the, that's where I, I think it's a mistake. Yeah, and I think actually there's a huge groundswell of support for people investing in crypto. I do see that. Um, but do you, do you think it's actually, you know, crypto, do you think crypto investing or speculating is a good route towards upward, you know, financial mobility? Well, it's an option. It depends which way the the price goes after you've bought, obviously. Um, what the, uh, the, the point I'm making is that the government should be neutral on that, right? Just because something's volatile doesn't mean that the, it should be banned. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's move on to something different, which is, uh, you know, central bank digital yeah. currency. Uh, obviously, there was talk about a, a Brits coin, which I've got to say is fantastically named. Um, I'm a big fan of that. Um, do, do you think that's uh, something we should explore further? It's, it's obviously not decentralized in the same way that crypto is, yeah. but it is, it is an evolution in the way that we do digital finance. You know, what, what are your views? Well, uh, uh, here I'm more, um, I'd say, up to a point. Um, you've got to ask, what is the purpose? Because this is 
a proposal for the again the government through well the central bank but the authorities to to um, to act in this space. Um, what is the purpose of what people are pushing? Um, well, the main benefit it seems to me of uh, CBDC is to improve the payment system. But the payment system in the UK is incredibly strong. You know, we've had real-time settlement of payments for uh, for 15 years now. Um, we have one of the best domestic payment systems in the world. And, you know, when people say, well, we need a digital currency, uh, you know, I came here on the tube and I use my phone uh, to pay for my tube fare, right? That is a digital currency in that I have currency that I can use digitally, you know, without even, it's not even the touch of the button. I don't even get close to the to the little yellow pad, right? So um, for retail purposes, I can't see much value added. What it essentially is, is an argument to move the payment system from the existing uh, uh, tech structures onto a blockchain tech structure. Uh, that is a That is a pretty marginal change. Um, where there is value is in international payments. So the international payment system is much more fragmented and much more expensive. I can see why in the States there's a lot of interest because there effectively payments between one state and another are as difficult as international payments. And the the federal uh, nature of banking regulation makes it complicated. But in the UK, you know, we're lucky to have RTGS was invented, you know, I worked on it briefly at the Bank of England 20 years ago. So, you know, it's been in place for ages. And so I can't see the strong use case. Now, that's for a um, for a central bank digital currency. Um, that's, that's even for wholesale, where I can see the international benefit, but I can't see much domestic benefit. For a retail central bank digital currency, that's basically saying that we should all ha- be able to have an account at the Bank of England. Now, um, yeah, is that is that feasible? It I just feasible to you know, me, why would you ask the central bank to do the anti money laundering and the other checks that are reasonable that need to be done? You know, perfectly reasonable debate about whether AML is overly burdensome. Um, and now we're out of the EU, we can ask those questions for ourselves. However, those rules, it is important that we do have those rules, and I think that probably the banking system is a decent place to locate that activity rather than everybody having an account at the central bank. Now, as it happens, I used to have an account at the Bank of England because I was a staff member, right? And and they got rid of those because they didn't want to do anti-money laundering for a couple of thousand people who worked there. Um, it was wonderful. I used to have a checkbook that had the same font as on the banknotes. It was very, wow. it yeah. was great fun, but it was also completely inefficient. Yeah, they were right to get rid of it, and I can't see the benefit of bringing that back. So my take is that central bank digital currency for the UK at least isn't happening anytime soon. Well, I think if 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 say um, the Bank for International Settlements brings in a central bank digital currency for international payments with an open standard that can mean international payments can be done as easily as domestic payments can here in the UK, great. And we should participate in that. And I know that the Swiss are really pushing on that door as well. Um, but that is a really quite technical space um, as opposed to the core um, ask, which is more valuable in other countries where they don't have um, the, a super super efficient domestic payment system. Because if you think about it, if a if if it in an economy, if it costs two three percent to make a payment, then getting rid of that is huge and very valuable. Here, it's nothing like that. Uh, it's mostly free to make most payments, and um, if they're very large payments, then the 
the fee is tiny. So therefore, I don't think the value yeah. is all that big. So we've we've nailed the name, but the rest doesn't need to follow. <laughs> well, That's well, the, the 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 challenge is the use case here, yeah. right? The the use the value of the use case is pretty small. And anyway, the exciting thing about uh, cryptocurrencies, whether uh, untethered or whether stable coins, the exciting thing about them is the ability to decentralize. And a central bank digital currency is like saying, well, here's this exciting decentralizing idea. Let's get the central bank to run it. Yeah. Well, hold on. And, and it would give the government access to every single payment you've, you've made, I assume. Well, in the same way that your bank currently yeah. can. Um, and so that is another, it wouldn't give the government access, it would okay. give the central bank access. Gotcha. But nevertheless, it mm -hmm. would give the authorities uh, access. Now, here, I don't think that's a problem because we haven't got an autocratic state, but I can see why some countries are, are worried about that. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's talk about fintech. This this podcast used to be called The Fintech Show. Right. Funnily enough, so it seems like a, a good topic to move on to. Um, we had a conversation a while back with, with Roger Cameras, who, as I mentioned to you earlier, Matt, was was part of the team who helped build the ARPANET at MIT. And yeah. He, he made the point to me that the, the market cap for the entire FTSE 100 is, um, well, as of yesterday, it was $2.47 trillion. Uh, I've, I've looked at dollar terms because that comes up first in Google, I won't lie. Um, uh, you see, you're driven by the internet uh, yourself. Yeah, absolutely. You've lost, be... your, you lost your autonomy already. <laughs> <laughs> it's the wealth tech show. The, the internet reigns supreme, I'm afraid. Um, and the market cap of Apple, by the way, is $2.73 trillion. That's right. Apple's worth more than the whole FTSE 100. Right. And, and the, the question that he was raising and the question I'm going to put to you is, yeah. you know, are, are, we, are we missing out on something there by not putting fintech at the, the heart of our economy? Well, I, I'm a massive fan of fintech, and I think that we should build the strongest possible ecosystem. I think there's been very significant progress over the last decade or so here in the UK, you know, and you can see the big funds starting to really flourish uh, here in the UK now in a way that, you know, when I first went into this in the uh, policy space, uh, in the coalition era in, in 20, after 2010, you know, the big question was how do you get the scale-up funds, you know, the so-called funding valley of death. Those, that, that, that is far, far more mature now. The key thing is to keep a, an, a positive, progressive, liberal regulatory regime again. You know, the FCA used to have its sandbox, uh, which was uh, lauded and appraised when it was first brought in. It then got much tougher because it worried about criticism. Well, it, your job is to encourage innovation and growth, as well as, of course, uh, protecting against fraud. And the FCA, in the just in the last couple of months, have just noticed a more positive uh, posture and angle, and they need to do far, far more to be encouraging of fintech. Um, just in the last, uh, just in the last uh, uh, week. We've seen the Treasury announce reforms to Solvency Two, which are highly liberalising of, uh, of of where uh, investment can go. Delivering that would be a huge benefit and open opportunities mm -hmm. for investment. So there's, my yeah, point is, there's a lot us, more yeah. that can be done. Can you talk us through Solvency Two and, and what difference it, it makes? Yeah, so the so Solvency Two obviously is the requirement for um, for for some of the largest funds to essentially match their uh, assets to liabilities, which has been so tightly defined increasingly over about um, a couple of decades, uh, but under the EU law, that it's meant that the ability of some of the biggest funds on the planet, frankly, uh, to invest in innovative and dynamic 
opportunities has been limited because they've had to mark so much of their book to very safe assets like gilts. And the idea here is that you open up a small proportion. So there's still the obviously the need to make sure that these that the very large institutions remain solvent. That was the point of solvency too. The problem is that by overdoing that, it has driven out some of the big fund, the big uh, very formal funds like insurers uh, from uh, risk assets, from being able to invest in you know dynamic, interesting uh, future opportunities. And I hope that uh, following the announcement this week from Treasury that we can really open that up um, whilst also, of course, making sure that the system remains safe. Okay. And to go back to the point you were making about, um, you know, the the regulation around fintech. Yeah. There's actually some, some good some good figures to, to back this up. So um, so 2021, it turns out, was actually a record year for, for tech listings on, on the LSE. Yeah. Uh, 6.6 billion was raised, and that includes the Deliveroo and Dark Trace uh, floats. And that was more than double the figure for 2020, it yeah. turns out. Um, and, and but for contrast, the Nasdaq and, and NYSE raised forty seven billion. Right, comparing yourself to America is never an easy thing to do. No, but we, of course we should be ambitious, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and um, there have been um, reforms to um, listing rules. Uh, the, uh, look, as a politician, I understand the impulse to say we should get big businesses to do X, and therefore you stick it on the listing rules, uh, whatever the good X, you know, the social um, task that you're looking for. Uh, the latest is over ESG requirements, but there's all, there's all sorts of uh, of requirements that are layered on. The result of that, the net result of that in the UK has been to drive more and more money private, which means that fewer and fewer people can have access to the returns that it generates. Um, and so you ha- in order to have an effective exchange and effective fundraising, you need to make sure that it works for the investor uh, and for the business, um, as well as those wider social goals and i think that understanding that and not overburdening the listing process is incredibly important to make sure that you have open markets because otherwise you essentially just you just drive fundraising private makes the system less efficient and certainly makes it less accessible Mm-hmm. There have been uh, some of them changes you mentioned. I mean, the FCA has has uh, changed the rules on the minimum amount of equity that a company needs to release uh, in order to to be put on the the premium list. It used to be twenty five percent of shares needed to be in public ownership. It's now ten percent. Um, and and yeah, the UK fintech investment was over twenty seven point five billion in twenty twenty one, and that was a, a sevenfold increase in the in the previous year. But if you just compare those figures, twenty seven billion investment of which six on open markets, mm-hmm. right? So. Um, taking those figures at face value, that is a massive, uh, massively higher proportion is going through private uh, hands, and those figures are hard to know because you know private transactions are so much harder to uh, to trace. Um, whereas having having open markets, it has has value, right? It has value in liquidity terms uh, for investors. Uh, it has value in terms of access for uh, society, and so you end up. If you overly burden the listing rules, just driving money privately, and um, and I, I think that's what we've seen, and we need to reverse some of that. Mm-hmm. And, and to what extent could we be accused of changing our rules to fit around the kind of culture of the tech world? Because this whole you know ten percent public listing thing seems to reflect on the, the kind of cult of personality that you see in tech. These kind of founder-led businesses where you know you, you, everyone knows the name like Zuckerberg, Bezos, Bill Gates. You know we all know how it goes in tech. 
should we be mindful about bending our regulations around what they what's it better changing our regulations around the way that tech companies do things well the be- the best approach is to have a competitive market that's obvious to say very hard to do when you have uh, essentially the structuring of some tech that the returns to scale are so huge uh, especially in social media and, and and Amazon is another you know classic example where you know good old Ocado is doing their very their level best and a, a brilliant organization but taking on a global giant essentially so um so that comes to competition law right and so we've talked about the FCA another part of the sort of authorities is the CMA where you know making sure that our competition law is up to scratch for the digital age is another huge task that we should be undertaking post Brexit because it's very it's, it's very yeah. complicated. Well, and there are some behemoths in the tech space. So yeah. how, how do you create? Yeah. A, maybe not a level playing field, but a, a fairer playing field. Yes, and field. especially because they're global uh, businesses. Mm-hmm. But my view has always been just because they're global businesses, should, the the UK can't take a democratic view over that. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the way, actually, the practical way to do it is to look at the next generation of. Uh, developments. So take the developments of the of the metaverse, right? If you if I think of uh, Web 1.0 as an essentially open platform with open standards um, and um, how, with an ideal of democratization, much of which paid off, Web 2.0, as we know, then got dominated at the platform level by these these um, behemoths. Um, Web 3.0, we can already see Meta trying to move in, basically trying to own Web 3.0 and say they're going to define the rules. Well, you know, let's stop right there, Mark. Uh, <laughs> you know, we should be, we should make sure that there are genuine open standards, collaboratively development developed. Mm-hmm. You know, um, like the World Wide Web, that is a that makes sure that when we, as we move to Web 3.0, that is not dominated by huge platforms but rather is a genuinely uh, a set of genuinely interoperable open standards we can make that happen but only if we get in that debate now yeah do you think big tech companies have gone a bit hard on on the power grab you know there's obviously the uh, the attempt to uh, libra of course with meta the digital currency they try to see themselves yeah Uh, are they overreaching well they have become huge they now call for regulation themselves because they recognize that it is unsustainable that a private actor should have so much power. Um, and there are areas they don't want to get into, like, for instance, the regulation of you know, the political debate is a terrible place for uh, a global business to get into. But at the same time, they try to protect the, um, uh, the, the monetization within their algorithms. Um, of course they do, because they look to shareholder value. So so it is very, very complicated. Um, in the UK, we're grappling with this through the online harms bill. But even that, you know, I, I was the digital secretary when that the white paper for that came out. Even that doesn't go to the heart of the, um, the algorithmic um, money-making uh, piece, right? Because it is so complicated to get to the bottom of. Um, because ultimately, the share of value from an from an advert on a private platform is very very hard to uh, to regulate in a way that doesn't blow the whole thing up. My point about Web three point zero is that we are now at ground level, 
and let's develop this at ground level as an open platform that is essentially democratic, not dominated by one company, which has already set out to try to dominate it. Mm -hmm. So there's are you against the idea of having one metaverse? Should there be several metaverses? There should be infinite opportunities for development of the metaverse. They should be interoperable. Mm -hmm. That's the point. Like yep. the like the original internet. Mm -hmm. The idea of meta running the metaverse makes me shudder. <laughs> so there needs to be some kind of shared ecosystem though, so things kind of move from one platform to the next. Yeah. I you know, works. I want I want I want Meta to be the AOL of Web 3.0. You know, I want I want them to be, you know, they if they try and there are signs that they won't try this and I hope they don't. But if they try to become, you know, the metaverse and synonymous with the metaverse like AOL tried to make the internet on its platform, and it crumbled in its attempt to do that because the 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 liberating democracy of of the of the internet was so much more powerful than one company's attempt to control what happened within it. I hope that's what happens in Web 3.0. Buy and come and play and come and build amazing stuff, Meta. But just don't try to define the whole thing. We should, let's do that through open standards. Mm -hmm. And go back to regulation of the big tech companies. How, how do you do that with, with multinationals? You know, and, and to, to bring something into it, I think I think tax is an obvious thing. I think the, yeah. the G7 agreed last year to a, a global minimum corporate tax rate of 15% yeah. for, for these, these companies. Uh, and, and the OECD actually estimated that will generate $150 billion. Again, I'm using dollars, Matt. Sure, um, no problem. In, in global tax revenue. Um, you know, and for a UK perspective, uh, the think tank Tax Watch claimed that Amazon, Google, Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, eBay, Adobe, and Cisco collectively avoided paying about around 1.5 billion uh, in tax on their profits. How do you how do you regulate these companies? Well, firstly, on tax in particular, the international mm -hmm. is critical. Um, but secondly, the first thing you've got to do to uh, to have a regulatory approach is to try. Right. For years, the view was, well, they're big multinationals. What can we do? Right. But that's the wrong approach. We're a sovereign country. They're not going to turn off the uh, their services. And uh, they tried doing that with a couple of countries. I mean, I think if it, 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 yeah. it's unthinkable um, and um, uh, but also work with the with the companies to understand, you know, explain what we as, you know, as the, the body politic, if you like, are trying to achieve. Um, and then have that uh, 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 and have that discussion. Uh, the better coordinated internationally this can be, um, you know, that's all for the good. Uh, but sometimes then you end up with the, you know, the fleet moving at the speed of the, the slowest ship, and yeah. and sometimes you just got to get on with it. And that's what we're doing with the online harms bill. Yeah, I can see I can see it being very challenging to get every nation to agree to how you do this. Yeah, um, and separately difficult to deal with these companies. I mean, in your experience, what what are the big tech companies like to deal with? Are, are they? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm assuming they're very tough negotiators. Well, I've had a pretty actually pretty positive relationship because because I, I believe in the value and of the of technology that's being developed, right, to improve the human condition. That's what this is all about. Um, the question is what is the framework within which that happens? So uh, actually, my sort of at a personal level of interaction, uh, it's been pretty good. I'll give you one example. Um, obviously, when I was responsible for the vaccination program, making sure that 
anti-vax content was dealt with properly, both by takedown of the outrageous stuff and by positive uh, promulgation of a scientifically based objective uh, um, answers to questions, the tech companies were brilliant on that. And, um, you know, uh, the, then they engaged at a very senior level. They put in place a proportionate system where they took down stuff that was obviously not based on fact, but they, uh, but actually the best response to uh, negative stuff on vaccination uh, propaganda and anti-vax propaganda is counter-narrative. So just, you know, get the NHS verified real facts out there and have a transparent approach. So that's just one example in the last couple of years where I've been heavily engaged in talking to the platforms. And frankly, uh, they really rose to the task and I give them, I give them that uh, credit. But we did that through agreement because they agreed to um, they agreed with the mission, if you like, and um, the uh, and in the end, NHS content therefore became, you know, consumed globally in terms of the facts about these uh, these vaccines. So you can have you can have really good global reach. You know, you can jujitsu the fact that these are global companies uh, if if you get that engagement right. But a, but a but a nation state shouldn't be asking permission to do that, right? Um, and the the nation state, the you know, a democracy should be able to say this is how we want this to be structured and organised, um, and we have the opportunity here to make sure that we have an incredibly positive, uh, progressive, but ultimately socially determined, um, democratic regulatory regime. That's what we need to see. Okay, Matt, I think that's about all we've got time for. But do you have a parting message for listeners of the Wealth Tech Show? Well, I just I just want people to know that they there are people who are positive about making supporting change to happen and supporting innovation. And we need those of us who believe that the in the power of technology to improve people's lives need to be out there making that argument. Because it's very easy for a sort of um, for it to fall for the political de- level debate to fall back into a, a a super cautious one, right? But technology can make our lives better, and can uh, can 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 keep people safe and can improve things. And let's get out there and make that argument. Okay, Matt, thank you for joining us, and thank you to everyone listening into the Wealth Tech Show. Thanks for having me. <laughs>